It was just a few years ago, while trying to repair a leaky roof in an old house in Toulouse, France, that a dusty painting was found leaning against the rafters. There was a lot of junk up there, probably like my attic, and no one had really paid any attention to it for over a hundred years. But a friend assisting with the repair was an antiques dealer, and he was intrigued enough to take another look. After it was brought out into the open and dusted off and examined by a few art experts, it was determined that it was no less than a painting by Caravaggio, a great Italian painter from around 1600. The subject matter was from the, uh, what we call the Apocrypha, the Hebrew, Hebrew heroine Judith, who, sentenced, who seduced, then beheaded the Assyrian general Holofernes in order to save her people. Strong stuff. There are only about 80 known works from this master artist, so a find like this sent shockwaves through the art world. Now, not everyone agrees it's authentic, but most do. And the day before it was due to be auctioned, it was sold privately for an undisclosed amount to someone we now know is connected with the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So, somebody's interested. Its auction value was estimated to be around $150 million. It's a lost masterpiece, unknown for 400 years, and now come to light. As we see and hear Mary today, I think of that lost painting. Only because in my own Christian tradition growing up, she was never really heard. She was only seen once a year when we put up the creche. She was always in the attic, if you will except for a few weeks where we watched her gaze lovingly at her child, silently. Now, we knew other women from the Bible. We heard about Mary Magdalene, we knew Mary and Martha, we knew Lydia, we knew Priscilla, we heard sermons on Ruth and Miriam, we knew who Hannah was, we were informed and warned about Delilah, and of course Eve, we heard plenty about Eve. But Mary was strangely absent. Now, this may not have been your experience at all, but for us, the, the Christian tradition I grew up in, this was true, and all we were consistently told about her was that the Catholics worshipped her. <laughs> and because of that, we better keep our distance. You know, I'm grateful now that uh, many are discovering this important figure in the salvation story as a real person, too. The lectionary helps us immensely in this regard, and the creeds. And as I've lived into the lectionary over the last several decades, I've been able to grow in my appreciation for Mary and to hear her voice and to see her witness. Mary is featured in the gospel readings for Christmas and Epiphany, as well as the Annunciation, which is March 25th, and the Visitation on May 31st. She also appears today on the fourth Sunday of Advent in every year, all three cycles. And the Magnificat is used in place of the psalm, which we heard today. Mary also appears in John's account of the Passion, read annually on Good Friday, where Jesus from the cross establishes a relationship between her and the beloved disciple, John. Mary also appears in at least three other lectionary readings amid Jesus' ministry. So, she's here. She's in the story. We just need to pay attention. Mary brought out once a year does not do justice to her. Neither does placing her high on a pedestal. 
far removed from the reality of an ordinary person. But today we have an opportunity to, to hear her again and to grow in our own lives by witnessing her bold faithfulness. So even though I do want to affirm that this, this story, this whole narrative of the birth of Jesus and the, the announcement of it and so on, God is the main actor. This is not about Mary. This is about God's faithfulness and God's work. Sometimes we need to just focus in on some of the details, and, and that's why I want us to look at Mary today in a couple of different ways. First was just to say what often is said about Mary, and that is she was faithful. I mean, this is an important marker for character. Gabriel comes to her to announce this incredible news, and he gives his standard entrance line, doesn't he? Which is what? Don't be afraid. I think he had to say that everywhere. And actually, she doesn't seem to be very afraid. Really? Zechariah, who Gabriel had visited earlier in the temple, was a nervous wreck. And he was argumentative to boot. She seems to be more troubled by what the angel says to her than by his presence. What does it mean to be highly favored? How is it that the Lord is with me? Just a young, poor girl. And promised to be married to a man she probably didn't know very well. Mary is not a significant person, as most people would see it. After Gabriel tells her that she will have a son, that he will sit on the throne of his father David, words actually that were uttered by Samuel, and that he will reign forever in a kingdom with no end, she only asks one question. How? It's not a challenge. It's not incredulity. She doesn't laugh like Sarah. She doesn't ask for assurances like Zechariah. She's just curious. She already believes. So often, I think, God wants to do new things in our lives, right? To bring, to bring us blessing and grace, renewal and reconciliation, to bring us good gifts. And when he does, we wrestle him to the ground with our many objections, our concerns, our worries, and our doubts. I think often the Lord just wants us to be curious about his good plans. Lord, that sounds great. What will it look like? How will you make that happen? And we can ask that so that we don't miss it. Mary shows us the way here. Then, of course, she commits herself fully and clearly. What does she say? She says, I am the Lord's servant. Slave, really. May your word to me be fulfilled. I mean, really, this might have been Gabriel's easiest assignment, right? She just says, so be it. Professor Eric Barreto says that Luke reminds us that profound faithfulness preceded Jesus' birth. The road to Christmas, he says, draws us to meet faithful people who believed who Jesus would be before he had drawn a single baby's breath. Mary didn't just believe she would have a child miraculously. She knew who this child would be, like no one else could have known. And she was faithful to that. I mean, this was risky. This was risky business. Childbirth was the most dangerous thing a woman could do. It still is fraught with all kinds of risks and dangers. She was engaged. Now she would be pregnant, perhaps labeled. Maybe her child would grow up under stigma because of that. I mean, there's so much she does not know and so many questions she could have asked. But what she does know, she 
Mary doesn't say yes because she feels she has to. She says yes to God because she wants to. She's a person of remarkable faith and trust. She is the mother of Jesus, yes, but Mary is also his disciple. We see her with him at numerous points in his ministry. I mean, she's refreshingly human at the wedding at Cana, isn't she? <laughs> do this. Go do that. Uh, I think of my own mom and how many times that, uh, you know, we'd be somewhere and she'd say, with friends, she'd say, oh, sing that song. I'm like, mom, really? No. So I love that about Mary here. I mean, sometimes we're hard on her about that, right? I think it shows just her humanness. But yet she believed. Even then, she believed in him. Later, she's at the foot of the cross in grief that only a mother can know. And Luke tells us that after the ascension, she's constantly with the others in prayer, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. We read that in Acts chapter 1. Her life of faith is not just limited to this one act of maternity. She is a faithful disciple. So first, that's Mary's faithfulness. Secondly, the thing I, I think sometimes we don't consider very often is that Mary is a prophet. We don't usually think of her that way, but if we take the Magnificat seriously, then we must include her in what the Te Deum calls the goodly fellowship of prophets. The ones that proclaim the Lord's word, his judgments, but also promises of hope. She is a prophet for Advent, just like John the Baptist, but also for Christmas and even for our own time. She visits her cousin Elizabeth right after this announcement, and she breaks spontaneously into praise. It's a word of worship, but it also has prophetic power in it. It's no less than a challenge to the established order of things. The mighty cast down, the lowly lifted up, the hungry fed, the rich exiled. Scott McKnight, in his book, The Jesus Creed, writes that Mary's background was the anawim, the pious poor. They suffered because they were poor, but they expressed their hope by gathering at the temple in Jerusalem where they yearned for justice, for the end of oppression, and for the coming of the Messiah. And we hear that in the Magnificat. Mary's hope that the lowly would be lifted up is something very personal for her. And she arrives at Elizabeth's with that renewed hope. See, if we only see Mary kneeling at the creche and we never hear her speak, we silence her witness to what God was doing, had done, and will do. The world was being turned upside down or right side up. And she knew it and she welcomed it. The church needs prophets in every time, those with words of hope, but also to speak the truth that so many don't welcome. I mean, it can be tricky, isn't it? How do we know it's a true prophetic word? Well, sometimes that just takes time, and it's also why discernment is so important. But we need to ask ourselves, are we open to the prophetic? Are we willing to learn and to listen to those who may speak hard things from the margin? that will challenge our way of being and the way we do things? Are we open to those who will declare truth in an age of conspiracies and fake news? Rachel Held Evans said that we need to hear them because they sometimes see things clearly that those at the center do not. This is not easy, 
It takes a lot of grace and trust in what God is doing. And it takes love among brothers and sisters. I've known a few people with prophetic gifts in this way. They're the last people you invite to a dinner party. They can sometimes be difficult. But it's because they see things. And they say things that we need to see and and hear. And this is what Mary does. Mary comes to us in our own troubled time in the world with words that unsettle, yet give comfort and hope. Surprisingly, her word is in the past tense. Did you hear that? God has done these things, she says. We look around us and we're not too sure about that. But prophets help us to see that what God has promised to do is already settled. This is the source of real hope, not just optimism. The faithful speak of the future as if it's already here. In fact, such faith is required if we're to be participants that help to achieve that future. Fred Craddock observed that to celebrate the future as a memory, to celebrate the future as a memory, to praise God for having already done what lies before us to do, this is the way of the people of God. He says, God's people parade before they march. Mary declares this powerful to hope, powerful hope to us as a true prophet of God's salvation. And there's another thing I just struck by in this, and that is Mary's, Mary is not alone. She's not a lone voice. She's not a solitary figure. She's not a lone example of godly faithfulness. She is one of many remarkable women in the Bible who lived out their faith with godliness, integrity, and strength. Her Magnificat echoes Hannah's song from 1 Samuel. When the angel Gabriel says, nothing is impossible for God, which we have a little different translation here. But in that, we can hear Sarah, who says, is anything too wonderful for God? In Genesis 18. The artwork on the bulletin today by Sister Grace Remington of Mary consoling Eve is a poignant window into this important, important reality of relationships. I mean, do we know the women of the Bible? Do we know the women of the church's story over 2,000 years? Do we know them in our own church? Do we value and honor the role of women, their voice and presence in every part of the church's life? Do we model equality, the equality that Genesis speaks of in the very beginning and that the resurrection and Pentecost reaffirm? Is the Redeemer community a safe place for everyone? I really believe that's important. And as rector, you need to know that I believe it's crucial to the gospel mission of the church and something we're called to as disciples. Now, I don't talk about issues like that directly very much. I know some would like me to say more. I tend to work to cultivate the reality and then let it speak for itself. But sometimes a direct word is needed. You just need to know where I am sometimes on things. So I want to tell you about three women who were founders of Redeemer. <laughs> if I can. Faithful disciples, good friends. Uh, there are a number of people I can mention, of course. Many people were involved in the founding of Redeemer. Men and women. But since all three of these are now with the Lord... And they're absolutely vital to our beginning as a church and where we are now, I think I can talk about them. Because if they were here, they wouldn't want to be talked about in this way. 
They saw the future that God was revealing, and they committed themselves to it with all of their energies. Adelia Henry, Irene Bauer, Liz Jones. These were not perfect people, but they desired to be faithful to the future that God was showing them. Adelia and Rem Henry lived in Wilmette. Uh, they had a house in the kind of the downtown old part of Wilmette, and that's where prayer meetings began to discern the launching of a new church, Redeemer. And Adelia, through her hospitality and also her deep call to prayer, helped to really infuse the, the vision for a church with God's Spirit and God's presence, just through the things that she was doing to help to make that happen. Irene and Bruce Bauer were also founders of this church, and Irene is probably uh, more responsible than anyone for our relationship with Rwanda. She connected with Bishop John Ruchahana, and she heard about the needs of Sunrise School, and she said, let's help. And there began an annual banquet that in involved over the years hundreds of people from the North Shore and many thousands of dollars raised for Sunrise. The girls' dormitory at Sunrise High School is named after Irene. She was a founder of Redeemer. And then Liz Jones, uh, Liz and John were good friends. I actually did not know Adelia or Irene. They had passed away before I came. But I knew Liz well, and Liz was sort of the built-in welcoming team of the church before there was one. And uh, she would just see people who were coming in and, and connect them and welcome them and try to make a place where they could fit in. I still remember after my mother visited one time, uh, <clears throat> who's not a very outgoing person. Uh, my dad was very much that way, but she was not. And uh, several times after that, she said, who was that nice lady that talked to me? And I had to think about it, and I realized, oh, that would be Liz Jones. They said yes to God. They took a risk. They exercised their faith when they could have taken their ease. I mean, I think most of these women were in their 70s when they launched, along with their husbands and others, Church of the Redeemer. But see, this is always the choice before us. Do we say yes to God and the future that he shows us? Or do we pull back and go our own way? So back to Caravaggio. He was a painter for his time. Both his father and his grandfather died of plague on the same day when Caravaggio was six years old. His mother died not long after, and in his early teens, he was apprenticed to a painter. And his skills became really evident. But it was a hard time in the world, plague, pandemic, Wars, conflict. And he became the painter who could show suffering like none other. In fact, if you know his paintings, I would encourage you to go look up a few of them. They're just, there's this bright light on, on suffering, and all the background is this deep, black, dark color. But he was a troubled individual. Caravaggio was uh, a brawler, he was a fighter. He carried a sword with him. He spent the last few years of his life in southern Italy running away from the authorities, having been accused of a murder. 
Mary is also a voice of her time and of ours. She was poor, right? She was not significant. She was living in a kind of an insignificant province of the Roman Empire. And yet her response to the situation in her life was trust and faith in God. It was absolute commitment to what God was wanting to show her and to reveal in and through her. In a few days, Advent will give way to Christmas. I think we're ready for that. But we are always in Advent, really. We are always waiting in faith and trust for the coming of God's kingdom. And we want for this new year, don't we, to be something that brings us renewed health and renewed peace for our whole world. And so we wait. But in our waiting, we see Mary, obedient, trusting, hopeful, looking for the reign of God. Let us follow her. Amen.